James. Steven Dubner. Ask me a question. Guess what's happening in a few months? Uh, in a few months. The most months, important thing in the world, supposedly. I know exactly what's happening in a few months is the re entry of golf into the Summer Olympics. I Really? That is? Was golf ever in the Summer Olympics? I think I'm right that it was long ago, although it does seem improbable. But I do know that this year, for the first time in um, many, many, many years, golf is uh, in the Olympics. If they put golf in the Olympics, they've got to start putting chess in the Olympics. Oh, I was thinking podcasting in the Olympics. They should put podcasting in the Olympics. Here's my question. So I personally am not going to vote. I hate the whole idea that you have to vote. I feel like that's... You don't have to vote. No, but We like, don't have compulsory but people, voting. But people say to me, oh, if you don't vote, you can't complain. There's that whole argument. But I personally... And then you say to them, and is that why you complain all the time? <laughs> I, I should say that. Uh, I don't like any of the candidates. I think all the candidates won't do anything. There's no change. But I want... As an intellectual, well, it's not that the, it's not that it's not that you want them to do anything and make change, right? Right. Well, I'm actually against the whole. Uh, you want the presidency abolished? I want the presidency abolished. Which I which bring I, back Alexander Hamilton. Let him run everything. Well, he's a, a strong in favor of a centralized president. Was. So um, even a king potentially. E X A N D. Have you seen the show yet? No, what show? Hamilton. I haven't. It's the best show ever made. Really? Yeah, it's amazing. All right. I, I mean, some it. you know how sometimes things get hyped beyond, you know, expectations so that then if you get a chance to see the thing that's been hyped, you're like, oh. But Hamilton, I have to say, I hope it plays for a million years in a million different wow. places. I have to really see I this. just think it's an unbelievably great act of creation by Lin-Manuel Miranda that is creative and smart and clever and funny and deep all at the same time in a way that very, very few things in this world are. So I praise it. That's high praise. All right, I'm going to have to see that. So, okay, regardless of how you feel about the man, I want you to make a case for Donald Trump to be president. I had a feeling that's where you were going. All right, so if I had to make a case for Donald Trump to 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 be be president president, or or why he would be a good president? Why he might be a good president. All right. I'm, and by the way, I'm against voting for him for president. I'm not voting for anybody. But I want I want to just see how you would make a case that Donald Trump would be a good president. So first of all, let me say I share with you the notion that the presidency as perceived by the public is misperceived. That my longstanding position is that the presidency of the United States is an incredibly high-profile position whose power is much more limited than most people believe. To be fair, the power is limited by the Constitution, but the presidency over the years have taken greater and greater power. Like, they actually have very few yeah, but other powers, powers have been curtailed, too. Um, and look, it, this is a long conversation that we won't have here, although I have made a few uh, versions of this um, conversation in a Freakonomics radio podcast called Something like, how much does the president really matter? And it's interesting. You and did not have me on that podcast, I didn't, despite, believe it or not. despite me writing about this historian. in books and uh, articles. Yeah, I've I written a ton that. about the presidency. I now, I'm an expert. I now regret that um, hugely. I speak at colleges on this. But there are some elements, and, and it's weird. Uh, it's weird because the president does have almost unilateral power in some extremely large and important arenas, like you can start a war pretty much unilaterally. Let me let me ask you a question. <laughs> when is the last 
You can't do it unilaterally, by the way. Well, you can't literally start a war unilaterally. Uh, It has to have congressional approval. But when's the last legally declared war that the the president declared? Ooh, Vietnam? No, 1941. Really? Yeah. No kidding. Um, So there you go. What's another power of the presidency? Well, you know, you have to, especially since we happen to be speaking at a point where there are eight Supreme Court justices, you have to make the argument, I think, any honest intellectual argument, I think, would have to include the fact that the appointment to the Supreme Court is, in the long run, a pretty substantial influence. But then you get into these arenas like the economy, where people look to the president to be the standard bearer and the chief economist, essentially. And the fact is that the president's powers there are extraordinarily limited. And I would even argue— Actually, that the I don't think they have any power other than to collect taxes, which were meaningless for the first 150 years of the presidency. But— the irony, if you want to call it an irony, is that most presidential campaigns, but especially this one, are centered around some version of economic repair and distress. Whereas, in fact, the president is a much more dog than tail. Or is it tail than dog? Well, in the, in the way the president has influence on economics is because the one constitutional power related to this the president has is they're allowed to recommend laws to Congress. Not make laws, but they're allowed to recommend things. (laughs) Well, beyond that, the economy is not all that connected to our laws. I mean, obviously it is. There are things that are legal and illegal, but there isn't that much that even Congress does that really, really, really changes the shape of how successful or unsuccessful an economy is. Now, the more you do, the more influence you can have. But every time a president or Congress or Senate says – If we want to make more jobs, all we have to do is X, you can almost certainly assure that they don't know what they're talking about because there isn't that much that they can actually do. Right, and there's there's so much proof in both directions on any kind of economic policy like high taxes, low taxes, higher public spending, higher private spending. Um, So anyway, make the case that Donald Trump would be a good president. I just want to so see you go through the all, intellectual exercise right, of this. So first of all, I would say that if you're really scared about a Trump presidency for one of any number of reasons, I would argue that your fear is based on campaign rhetoric that, as with any almost any presidential campaigner, is exaggerated to the point of caricature and, in fact, wouldn't reflect the reality once said person was in office. Two, I would say that Donald Trump, the candidate, has been acting, speaking, and positioning himself almost unilaterally to a degree that is extremely rare among presidential candidates and that presidential – not only presidential power but the presidential setup is in fact nowhere near that unilateral and so that even if you consider his worst impulses to be – dreadful that he almost certainly would not want to or be able to act upon them. Well, what and do you the, think what do you think realistically are his worst impulses because we we agree some things he says are just to kind of get supporters however he can but other things he says might be realistically how he views things. So what what are his actual worst instincts in your opinion? I don't know. Well, I mean I could run off a list, right? That everybody kind of knows. But like he clearly doesn't do with... want to build a wall. Yeah, I don't know. Here's the thing. Okay, so here's what I really think about Donald Trump. I think that Donald Trump did what a lot of people in a position like his, which is to say not many people, because there aren't that many people who have positions like his, do, which is think, hey, I'm gonna run for a very prominent office 
because it's kind of good for my business. So I'll tell you something. I once learned from a very close confidant of Mike Bloomberg, who became mayor of New York for 12 years for a third term that he kind of orchestrated that wasn't supposed to happen, that Mike Bloomberg never had any intention, never had any plan, never had any desire to be mayor, but he did want to run for mayor. And he wanted to run for mayor because it was good for the Bloomberg brand. And then once he put the Bloomberg brand out there, all of a sudden people heard it and said, oh, we think this guy should be mayor. I think that's very similar to what's happened to Trump. And I think in the in recent days, we've heard more and more people starting to hint at that and even say it quite directly, which is that he wanted to come in second or third in some prominent primaries because that's kind of who he is and what he does. He's a salesman. He's a builder. He's a brand and so on. So I think that he has he had no intention or desire at all to become president. But life is weird. Elections are funny. And all of a sudden, he's in a position to actually win the nomination, which I think he probably will, and I think he'll probably get crushed in a in a general election. But the crushed might be more a function of, uh, it's like Nate Silver at 538.com. He, Who, by the way, 538.com was about as wrong on Trump six months ago as you could possibly be. Oh, really? I didn't know Which that. just goes to show you, one of the reasons that Nate Silver is good is because he's smart enough to know that usually when you make a prediction, you make it based on a whole lot of data like state polling data during a very data-intensive period like a presidential campaign when you have a lot to base it on. But six or eight months ago, everybody, including 538, said Trump's chances of getting even close to the nomination are close to zero. And the smart people, as often as the case, turned out to be wrong, I'm afraid. Take a moment to listen to this message while we figure out where this answer is headed. I'm Arnie Niekamp from Hello from the Magic Tavern. This is what's going on. About a year ago, I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King into the fantastical land of Foon. I'm joined by my co-host, a talking badger. Mmm, please. And a magical wizard. I am Usador, blue wizard of the 12th realm of Ephesius. His name goes on a lot longer than that, but oh, we don't have so time for names. it. We interview adventurers, magical creatures, talking animals, and we talk about buttholes a lot. I apologize <laughs> for that. If that sounds interesting, download Hello from the Magic Tavern. Aye, uh, and then you can join me in my quest to defeat the Dark Lord. Correct, Arnold? Correct. Download it on Earwolf, and the entire back catalog is also on the Howl app. Well, I also, about six months ago, wrote a post about Trump saying he would probably top out at 12% of the Republicans. Nicely done, James. I was totally wrong. I'm admitting that. But, again, you're giving reasons why... We don't need to worry about Trump. I want you to make the case for Trump. Again, I want to see you force yourself sure. to play devil's well, advocate. You're, and you're assuming, I'm assuming, by the way, you're against Right, you're Trump. assuming I hate him, which everyone in our, you know, everyone that you and I know probably um, says that they hate him. But I think that when people say they hate Trump, they hate that his appeal seems so visceral and that they're the kind of people who think that political appeal should not be visceral. Whereas I would argue that political appeal usually is visceral. I think that you could take, let's say someone... Define visceral. Gut reactions, you know, emotional, related to the viscera, related to literally like the way you feel about a certain issue. The minute you see a wall, the picture of an anti-immigration wall, do you feel great about that or do you feel terrible about it? It's the initial gut blood-wrenching response. And I think that if you were to take, let's say, 100 
Bill Clinton dyed in the wool supporters, right? And ask them why they like Bill Clinton so much. They're going to come up with a long list of policies and kind of intellectual strengths that they'll tell you. This is why I think he was an amazing candidate and president. But I bet you that if we could measure what made them really love him, it would be that they just loved him. They liked him. He had a high Q score for whatever reason. And I think that we way over-intellectualize and way over-specify what makes people support a political candidate. And we think it's about the platforms and the positions. It's not. Right, because we don't really know what Trump feels about any one issue. In fact, he's even gone on record saying he's not going to tell how he feels about certain issues. Like, for instance, how he would respond to, like, an attack on American soil, which probably is a correct response. Like, why give your strategy away before, you know, it's necessary? But, again... Make the argument for a good President Trump. Sure. Um, just so, again, I just want to see how you do it. He's decisive. He's not a hammer and a horror. So if you're the kind of person who doesn't like President Obama because you think he's too considered and too hemming and hawing and too on the one hand, on the other, too, ac- too academic and intellectual, then Trump would be a different cup of tea. He is uh, very forthright in his defense of America as an exceptional place, which, um, again, if you are um, a diehard supporter of President Obama or, in fact, many Democratic candidates, you could say that, well, they seem a little bit more tortured in their patriotism. And you could argue that Donald Trump really does see America as the beacon on a hill, the shining light that is exceptional and therefore worthy of our utmost defense. And I think that you could argue that a lot of the received wisdom and politically normative statements about our society that may have their heart in the right place but are in the end damaging, that he would have little patience for them. And in fact, he would be much more solution-oriented rather than perception-oriented. There you go. What about any uh, policy-specific stuff? So I don't know that much because I don't follow politics very much. And I think, um, you know, I I haven't heard very much specifically um, from him. I know he talked a little bit about taxation, which what, sounded kind of what did he say about taxation? Sounded kind know. of um, undue. You know, it was it was. Um, oh, didn't he want to have like a ta- uh, wealth tax, like a one-time wealth he d- tax? He does want to even things out, and I think he wanted to. I think one thing that he, I think I'm right on this. One thing that he attacked particularly was um, carried interest, which you'd probably know a lot more about than I do, right? Carried interest is the profits gained by, let's say, a private equity firm that are treated at a much lower rate than other income. And he said, that's not fair. This is a loophole that these guys have created for themselves by having a lot of money and a lot of leverage, and I want to get rid of that. So I think that from what I saw, the economists who looked at the economic angle of his taxation plan said it was untenable. But you know what? Bernie Sanders' taxation plan is, I would say, equally if not more untenable in the opposite direction. What's his plan? I don't know. Uh, 90% tax rate for— What? Uh, uh, he's not getting my vote. <laughs> <laughs> um, what does the government do with that money? Mostly they're going to build more podcast studios because oh, okay. they found that— Then I might that, be in favor. They found that the one thing in the world that really helps people, clean air and clean water, overrated, access to health care, overrated, food, especially healthy nutritional food, overrated. The one thing that makes people happy— Podcast. And healthy and productive 
is listening to podcasts. But I'm not letting you end on this note. I know your I know the tone of your voice when you get into let's glide into an end on the podcast. I'm holding your feet to the fire here. Do you feel people after listening to this podcast and you even though we did this only as an exercise, do you think people are going to now be upset at you for coming up with anything positive about Trump? To paraphrase Groucho Marx, who said that any club that would have me as a member is not a club I would want to join. I would say that any listener or friend who would listen to me pursue this intellectual exercise, this thought experiment, and who hates Trump so much that me merely uh, expressing the thoughts that you asked me to express is not someone that I would care to have as a listener or friend. And so I hope that doesn't offend anyone. I don't mean to offend anyone by it, but I couldn't care less. You know what? I find in general I believe that But every now and then, someone says a criticism, and I get criticized quite a bit, as I'm sure I criticize you you all the time, only behind your back, though. (laughs) I I know, I hear through the grapevine. Your hands are small. (laughs) Yes. You know, that's why I can't write as fast as you can. Mm. I feel sometimes people criticize me, and I I always say, oh, I don't care what people think of me, and uh, in general, that's true. But every now and then, I do care. Oh, no, look, I think it's really valuable, especially if you do things publicly, you know, um, at your company, if there's a meeting and you stand up and with an idea, that's a public expression of your, you know, thought, and and that's risky. And I think you definitely feel it when people criticize you. I'm not saying that's not true. But I'm saying something a little bit different. If people want to criticize, fine. Sometimes you ignore it. Sometimes you not. I will tell you one thing I do increasingly is I use TweetDeck um, to to manage our Twitter stuff. And if I find someone on Twitter who's being – I love getting negative feedback or you know constructive criticism. It's incredibly helpful. But if you get kind of stupid and ad nauseum feedback – like, you know, if we have someone on our Freakonomics radio show and they and this person just doesn't like that person and says, hey, Freakonomics, you guys are idiots for wasting my time with so-and-so, and they do that five times, then I just hit the mute button on um, TweetDeck, which is a, a very lovely, um, you know, mechanism to have. And I feel like that's the way that I generally try to do things. I always listen, like, the first two or three times to criticism, and if I feel if, if it's useful and true, even if it's very negative, then I really seek that out. But if it's stuff that just makes you feel bad, then just do your best to ignore it. And what I'm saying here, though, is a little bit different. I'm saying that... Um, I don't think that people who listen to this show or a show like this would necessarily penalize someone like me for um, coming up with reasons in your Trump exercise. Hey, podcast listeners, thanks for tuning in to Question of the Day. You can go to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast, and that way we will sneak into your device and deliver in your sleep a brand new episode. Our next one will sound something like this. I've seen you cry repeatedly. I've seen you in the gutter. What's your biggest career mistake ever? And what have you learned from it? What can anybody learn from a career mistake? As of this moment, I'd say my biggest career mistake was starting question of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Plainly. I'm sorry about that. It was my idea and I forced you into it. Question of the Day is produced and mixed by Nathan Rossborough with Allison Hockenberry. 